Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. This will be the second part in a four-part study of the question, who is this King of glory? This morning we will consider Him as the Holy King. On June 10th, 1991, in South Lake Tahoe, California, 11-year-old J.C. Duggard was abducted while walking to a school bus stop. Her stepfather saw her being kidnapped and he chased her abductors on his mountain bike, but to no avail. Searches that continued for months and months accomplished nothing. They did not find her. It was not until over 18 years later, August 26, 2009, that she was found and rescued from her imprisonment. Now, as a parent, there's perhaps no more terrifying thought than what happened to J.C. Duggard. The death of a child would be devastating, but at least then you would have closure. You would know what happened. In this case, a little girl, Andrew's age, 11, was not seen again by his parents until she was Meredith's age. And in fact, I'm overstating Meredith's age. And I'm not going to ask what Meredith's age is, because I know better. But somewhere around Meredith's age, you get the idea. Eighteen years of the unknown. Is she dead? Is she suffering? If she is alive, does she even remember who I am? Now, consider that it's you who's been abducted. For eighteen years, you've been a slave, and everyone has given up hope on even finding you. But an extremely wealthy and powerful figure in the community hasn't given up hope. He has used every bit of money and influence he has to track you down. He's even tasked his own son, who happens to be a local police investigator, with the sole purpose of finding you. And one day he does. By chance, he stumbles upon the house in which you are being kept, and he calls for backup. And in the ensuing melee, you are freed, but he is killed. A few weeks later, after you've had a chance to adjust and reunite with your family, be treated for injuries, both physical and mental, this community leader hosts a party at his house, in celebration of your rescue. And of course, he invites you as the guest of honor. But you don't go to the party. You see, he scheduled it on Friday night. And you watch television on Friday night. And add to the fact that you know for a fact that your your host or your requested host requires guests to remove their shoes before they come into the house. And you're comfortable in your shoes. You've always worn shoes in houses. And you have no desire to change that fact. Now, I would hope we would all agree that your decision to not go to that party would be insulting. It would be seen as selfish. It would be reflective of a total lack of consideration for what your benefactor has done for you. 
He has devoted years of his life and thousands of dollars focused on your rescue. And he sent his own son to rescue you. And he died in the attempt to rescue you. It would be a gross understatement to say that you are ungrateful. Now recall from last week, the mighty king. One with the power to create all that exists. One with the power to control that creation. To accomplish all of his purpose. One for whom everything that exists was created. And that mighty king freed his people from 400 years of slavery. With demonstration after demonstration of his power. And just a short time later, those people forgot their benefactor. They wanted to go back to captivity because it would be preferable to their current situation. Ultimately, we know the story, they ended up going after other gods. And that mighty king gave them over to those gods. And they returned to captivity in Babylon. But, This mighty king isn't just mighty. Our scripture today says that he's also a holy king. And when Moses approached him, that holy king told him to take off his shoes. For he was standing on holy ground. This morning as we consider 1 Peter 1 verses 13 through 16, we see the expected response of one who has benefited from God's work of salvation. For context, we will read verses 3 through 16, and we'll gain an understanding of why Peter calls for what he does in the last four verses of our text. We will see a mighty king who gave his son for us. And we will see a holy king who calls his people to that same holiness. Follow along as I read 1 Peter 1. Verses 3 through 16. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them 
that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This morning as we consider verses 13 through 16, we see the expected response of one who has benefited from God's work of salvation. And in this passage, Peter begins by praising God for his work and his mercy. What has God accomplished according to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 16? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has given us an inheritance, but not just any inheritance. One that is imperishable, one that is undefiled, one that is unfading. And He guards our salvation through faith. By whose power? By His power. The mighty King guards our salvation through faith by His power. Not our power to remain believing, but in His power to keep us believing. Because of all of that, because of all that God has done for us, We have a therefore in verse 13. And that therefore is followed by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the command. That is the imperative that Peter gives believers. Because of what God has done for you, Set your hope fully on that grace. Tom Schreiner states that God's commands are always rooted in His grace. That is what we see here with the therefore. Because of all that God has done for us, God commands us to set our hope on His grace. The command is a call to place your faith in nothing else. The world cannot save you. Your family cannot save you. Your job cannot save you. Your power and influence cannot save you. The only one who can save you is the mighty King. The one who sent His Son to die for sinners, but had the power to raise Him from the dead. The one you recall from last week, that created all things and controls all things. The one whose promises are always fulfilled. The one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. It is a hope. But it is a hope that is rooted in certainty. As mighty as this King is, Nothing he seeks to accomplish can be stopped. 
he does all that he pleases. So hope in his grace is not hope as we typically think of it. The best that hope can be in this world is a wishful hope. As great a football team as the University of Alabama has this season, they found themselves yesterday afternoon facing the very real possibility that as good as they were, their hope for an SEC championship or a national championship was out the window. Because Nick Saban does not have the power to work all things according to the counsel of his will. Now that may come as a shock to many of you, but I'm telling you the truth. As mighty as the U.S. military is, the most powerful military in the world, we have lost battles and wars. Because the United States does not work all things according to the counsel of its will either. And it is for that reason that we don't place our faith in Nick Saban or the United States. We place our faith in nothing except the grace of the One who does work all things according to the counsel of His will. A hope in the mighty King is an expectation based on what we know of Him. It is not wishful hoping. It is certain hoping. It is in response to that kind of hope that Edward Mote penned these words in 1834. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. But how do we set our hope fully on this grace? Peter says we accomplish it in two ways. Number one, we prepare our minds for action. Number two, we're sober-minded. The King James translates preparing your minds for action as gird up the loins of your mind. Now that sounds much better, in my opinion. But nobody today, no one knows what that means. So let me tell you what that means. The language hearkens to the typical wardrobe of the time. That was a wardrobe where typically a man would have a long tunic, an outer tunic, covering his clothing and possibly his sword, and it would extend all the way down to his feet. And if he had to go into battle, that could cause a problem, couldn't it? He couldn't get to his sword because he had clothes to his feet. And he couldn't move very well because he had clothes to his feet. And so, to gird your loins was to pull up your outer garment and stick it in your belt so that you had ready access to your sword and you could move with agility. That is what Peter is calling us to. To get ready for a battle. So, that is what we're being called to do. And brothers and sisters, we are always in a battle. Not a physical battle but a spiritual one. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12 that our wrestling, or wrestling, Shane, as we talked about earlier, is against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. So we don't face physical battles every day, but every day there are spiritual forces seeking to kill you. So gird up your loins. The cares of this world 
can be spiritual battles. Temptation, persecution, all of these things distract us from the hope in which we are to rest. And if our mind is not prepared for such attacks, we will be caught off guard and subject to defeat. That is why we have exhortations in Scripture. To pray without ceasing. To give thanks in all circumstances. Because the moment we stop giving thanks is the moment we will fail. If we let down our guard for a moment, we may be struck by the fiery darts of the evil one. Paul tells you to have a shield of faith for a reason. Because those fiery darts never stop. That is why we must persevere. The imagery in Scripture is not imagery for the sake of imagery. It's a depiction of very real threats from the spiritual realm that desperately try to destroy our faith. We must prepare our minds for such an attack or the attacks will succeed. Now, the second way in which we set our hope fully on the grace is similar to the first, by being sober-minded. My senior year in high school, I had the opportunity to travel to Birmingham and see what was, at the time, a relatively new musical. It's over 30 years old now, but if anybody says that afterwards, I'm going to be angry. Um, The musical is Les Miserables, and it continues to be my favorite musical. I've seen it many, many times. And in that musical, we see a group of students planning a rebellion against the French government due to their perceived injustice in the system. But as the leader of the rebellion is calling the men to take up arms and prepare for battle, we see one student over in the corner, drunk, and getting more drunk. The leader of the rebellion looks at him and rebukes him and says, Grantaire, put the bottle down. Do we have the guns we need? And his reply is one that's seemingly far removed from sober-mindedness. Because he says, give me brandy on my breath, and I'll breathe them all to death. But as the musical continues, we come to realize that his response is not mindless. It's instead a cry of hopelessness. He feels that while their cause may be just, there's no way they're going to win. So his drunkenness is an attempt to escape from that realization. He asks, will the world remember you when you're gone? Could it be your death means nothing at all? Is your life just one more lie? In his drunkenness, Grantaire is very sober-minded. They were going to lose. He was going to die. Their situation was unwinnable, and they had no hope. They don't call it Les Miserables for no reason. It means the wretched, by the way. But Peter's exhortation to sober-mindedness is not a call to fail. It is a sober-mindedness that comes from remembering our mighty King as we gird our loins. It's not a situation of hopelessness. It is a situation of expectation, of hope, a certain hope, as we discussed earlier. We are not defeated before the battle begins. We have no reason to run and hide from the coming battle. We have a champion When we face trials, we don't mope about failure. We look to Christ, our champion, who said, in this world you will have tribulation. 
But be of good cheer. Be of good cheer in the midst of tribulation. Why? I have overcome the world. Now in verses 14 and 16, Peter gives our second command. Not only are we to set our hope fully on God's grace, but we are to be holy in our conduct. He writes this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The basis of Peter's command is the Lord's holiness. This mighty king that caused us to be born again to a living hope, this mighty king who gives us an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, this mighty king that guards our salvation through faith by his power, that mighty king is holy. R.C. Sproul addresses two aspects of that holiness. One is communicable, one is incommunicable. The incommunicable aspect is that of God's transcendence, his otherness, as Sproul describes. He is eternal, and his creation is not. That makes him something other than his creation. He is the one with the power to create. His creation did not create itself, and it does not have the power to create itself. That makes God something other than His creation. This level of majesty is unattainable by God's people, or God's creatures in general. And God does not call us to that aspect of His holiness. But consider the second part of His holiness. That is communicable, and that is His purity. He is without sin. He is perfect. He is not led by passions as one who is ignorant. That is what Peter tells us not to do. He has a perfect, pure, single-purposed mind. And he calls his people to have that same mind. To be holy, for he is holy. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As believers, we have been removed from darkness. We are no longer ignorant. We know the Lord. This is how you know you will come to have come to know me, if you love me and keep my commandments. We have been removed from darkness and placed in His marvelous light. We see the error of our ways... And the response is to embrace the light and flee from the darkness. John writes in 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. It is normal for a child to take on traits of his father. And that is what we are called to. And in fact, That is what we are promised in Scripture. Remember the quote I shared from Tom Schreiner earlier. God's commands are always rooted in His grace. The call to be holy comes with a promise that God will make you holy. 
The grace in which we place our hope ensures our conformity to God's command to be holy. In Romans 8.29, we read that for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The image of His Son is an image of holiness. A few verses earlier in verse 13, we read, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, someone who holds to a work-based salvation will see that verse and say, See, we have to do something to earn our salvation. If we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. Simple. Oh, really? Well, try doing that without the Spirit. Because if you have no Spirit, you will fail. If by the Spirit... Notice, it doesn't say, if you put to death the works of the flesh. It says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. In the absence of the Spirit, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. What brings us from death to life is not an act on our part. It is an act on God's part. In fulfillment of His predestining us to be conformed to the image of His Son, the very first thing He does is call us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we can only respond in faith and repentance. If you've been listening in Sunday school and sermons for the last few months, you would understand that. In Ezekiel 36, you would understand that because He tells us exactly that. The new covenant comes with a promise. In fact, it is a promise that I will put my spirit within you. That spirit that you use to put to death the works of the flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. He who calls you to be holy gives you his spirit. To bring about your holiness. That is the work of sanctification in our lives. That is the process by which we are made holy. But we mustn't look to that sanctification as a badge of honor. Instead, we should see it as part of that grace on which we have fully set our hope. It is hope in the author and finisher of our faith. It is hope in the one who is in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is hope in the one who began a good work in us and is faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is the hope in the one who keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. A mighty king who is not a holy king It's just a tyrant. His purposes are scattered and ungrounded. And a holy king, who is not a mighty king, will remain alone in his holiness. He couldn't create. But our hope is in a holy king who calls his followers to that same level of holiness. And our hope is in a mighty king 
who is able to bring that holiness to pass by His might. Be holy, for He is holy. The Lord is mighty to save. In just a few minutes, men will come forward and serve the Lord's Supper. And all baptized believers will be invited to partake. It's a meal that looks back on a man. A mighty and holy king come in the flesh. And as we will see next week, a mighty and holy king who is our servant. For this mighty and holy king died that we might have our sins forgiven. And he was raised that we too might walk in newness of life. And it is a meal that looks forward to that same man, that same mighty and holy King, who will come again. It is then that we will share a meal with Him in His kingdom, a great feast that has been prepared for us. There we will spend that day and every day with that mighty and holy King, the King of glory. It is in this mighty and holy King that we hope because of what He has done for us, we are to set our hope fully on His grace and we are to be holy for He is holy. Let's pray. Father, Your goodness surpasses our understanding. And Your power surpasses our understanding. When we say that You are mighty, we have no real words to describe the magnitude of that might. And when we say You are holy, there is nothing to which we can compare Your holiness. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's in You we have placed our trust. Give us faith day by day as we persevere seeking to be holy as Your Spirit works in us to put to death the works of the flesh. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.